So we keep on keeping on. Hey, little humans. I'm Norma Jean, and this is Stay Wild, the podcast about how to keep your quirks in the wondrous world. We're talking to Nadine McNeil today, who's a yoga teacher. She used to work for the UN. She has an amazing story. And we get into some really juicy space about intersectionality, race, gender, and some really beautiful things come out of it in the interview. I hope you enjoy that and the toast poem that follows. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher. Please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps other people find the show as well. Today's show is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm an artist, cartoonist. You can find all of my shenanigans at njloves.com. And for those of you who might be interested in sponsoring the podcast, please find us at staywildpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Stay Wild. I'm Norma Jean, and I'm here with Nadine McNeil. Hi, Nadine. Hi, Norma Jean. Thank you for having me. Hi. So tell us a little bit about your journey. You're a yoga teacher. You do, you've do. you done some writing. You worked for the UN. Wow. And they're all <laughs> sort of interrelated. Uh, perhaps I'll start with the yoga because that's what I do now. I have been practicing yoga since 2012. I ha- 2002 rather, right shortly after 9-11, and I have been teaching for about eight or nine years, and I came to the yoga world mainly from the fitness world. I had always been a gym buff, a runner, very type A sort of personality, and I was living in Holland when I started yoga, and a friend of mine there suggested I try some yoga classes. And I kind of went along. I actually hated it at first. And then eventually when I left Holland and went off to another assignment in Sudan and then Indonesia, I took my yoga with me. And one of the things I loved about the practice was the fact that wherever I went, there I had it. I didn't have to go to a gym. I didn't have to join a membership. And so I just continued to deepen the practice. At some point, I wanted to learn more about the philosophy of the practice, this physical thing I was doing. Mm. And that took me to India, uh, where I did my first teacher training at the Shivananda Ashram. Had no intention of becoming a teacher, and here I am (laughs) teaching full-time. That's always the way it worked, isn't it? So you're from Jamaica. I am. And then how did you get involved with the UN, and then where did that take you? Hmm. Interesting you'd ask me this now, because I'm deep into the writing process of a memoir and it takes me I'm constantly revisiting that journey but shortly after leaving school in Canada I went home to Jamaica because my grandmother died and while I was there my mother at the time was working with the Nigerian High Commission as a PA to Nigerian ambassador and then she went off to New York to work with the Sudanese High Commission and while she was there a close family friend said you know you should have Nadine come to New York for the summer and we get her a summer job at the UN. So that would have been the summer of 1986. I went, started as a messenger and left 23 years later. Wow. So, you know, I, um, <laughs> I just did some work with a guy who I'm sure you know, Dan Reagan, and we spoke about keys of life, the keys. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was a huge revelation and gave me a great inner standing about myself, I was never one of these people that if you ask me where will I be in five years, I have no idea. But the sort of person I am is that wherever I am, I'm fully in the experience. Mm. And so as a result of that, I live from a larger place where I kind of allow the universe to guide me. And if I look at all the pieces, it's all interconnected from you know, even the fact that I worked in Sudan for nine months, the fact that, you know, my UN work sort of brought me to my yoga work. My yoga work has me working in what I call, you know, Yoga Bar in the United Nations of Yoga. It's all <laughs> kind of interrelated. Yeah, Yoga Barn's a big studio here in Ubud, Bali. So, Nadine, what kind of work were you doing with the UN? Emergency response and logistics. Okay. Yeah. So, in fact, that work brought me to Indonesia shortly after the tsunami. Mm. I was with UNICEF at the time, and 
I was the head logistician for the response effort to the tsunami. I spent a lot of time in Banda Aceh, based in Jakarta, but traveled around Indonesia okay. and a fair Banda bit. Okay, Banda for... For those of you who don't know, it's the north part of the island of Sumatra. Sumatra, correct, right? yeah. Yeah, so Indonesia has, I think, more than 10,000 islands, and Sumatra is a really big one. 35,000. 35,000, yeah. oh, right. So living here in Indonesia, there's heaps of islands. You know, most people live on Java or Bali or one of the major islands. Sumatra is one of the other ones, and they're really famous for coffee as well. Which we're here having. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, having a morning coffee here in Bali. It's a bit <laughs> rainy, but it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous morning. And one of the other things about Indonesia in the humanitarian emergency response world, Indonesia is known as the ring of fire. Mm -hmm. If you want to do disaster work, this is one of the top places in the world to do it because everything happens here. Landslides, monsoons, tsunami volcanic eruptions, you name it. Mm. So there was a fair bit of burnout that happened to me here. In fact, I was in Jakarta in 2006 mm -hmm. doing the emergency response to that earthquake there mm. and started to have a lot of physiological reactions that didn't make sense. I started to see stars, felt like I was blanking out. and Wow. Yeah, yeah, and... In fact, we were on the tarmac in Medan, C-160 aircraft about to take off. And I said to my colleague, I don't think I can do this response. And he said to me, well, what do you mean you can't do it? I said, I just don't feel well. He goes, oh, by the time you get to Yorkshire, you'll be fine. And anyway, the aircraft taxis down the runway. And I go to the person and I said to him, I don't think I can do this. And he says to me, you don't think you can do what? I said, the flight. He says, do you realize what you're asking me? And I said, yes. So they turned the aircraft around. This is after getting <laughs> like, flight clearance. Okay, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Which has taken all day because, you know, one of the things that happens with disaster responses is that everyone rushes in. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have an onslaught of aircraft, everyone trying to get over flight clearances, etc. Anyway, I get taken off the plane. I get wheeled into emergency in a dodgy little medical center in Medan. Right. And my blood pressure is like 180 over 110. I think wow. it was even higher than that. And I laughed because when I'm scared, I laugh. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a similar response when I'm very upset. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't go over well. When people tell me really bad news sometimes, I will burst down to laughter and they're like, someone died. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I just, I can't stop. It's like, it's like a nervous response. Yeah. yeah. Anyway... So obviously I didn't go to Jock Jakarta that day. And I remember the doctors, they gave me blood pressure medication and they gave me Xanax and I took that and went back to the hotel. And I did the response the next day, almost feeling as if I was stoned. And, you know, one of the really heart-wrenching things for me is if you've broken an ankle or a hand or something physical has happened to you, you get way more sympathy mm. than if you're having panic attacks and anxiety attacks because people can't see that, you know, so... Yeah, that's big in terms of mental health awareness. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people don't recognize a lot of the symptoms. And I've noticed, actually, I have a couple of friends who are aid workers um, or who have worked in that arena, and it's one of those things where I don't think people talk about the adrenal fatigue and the like I, I don't even I don't it's not burnout but it's like at every moment it's like if someone's not dying what's the big deal right right you're constantly on alert I remember when I was in Sudan someone I worked with there he was a human rights lawyer and I mean the prisons in Khartoum are just like nothing you've ever seen mm. um, he would be drinking gin at 10 o'clock and I remember when he said to me, 10 a.m., that is, and I remember he said to me once, he knew he had to get out of the job when a woman was sitting down telling him about her children being maimed, and in his head he was saying, shit, I forgot to take the chicken out the freezer to make dinner this evening. At this point, he realized he had so disassociated. And so that happens in this line of work. My burnout, if we want to call it that, manifested as panic attacks. It might have mm. saved my life yeah. in a huge way. And it was a reawakening at so many levels because, you know, coming from a family, I'm a single child or I'm an only child, rather. 
my mother abandoned the, the marriage when I was 13. Somehow I felt that, of course, I didn't understand this at 13, but I can now see it looking back on the work I've done. But when I couldn't save my family, I then decided, well, let me go off and see if I can save the world, mm. you know. And so the whole thing of putting the gas mask on self first before helping others was never part of my whole thing. It's so interesting how those things manifest. In in my creative process, you know, I've, I it took me about... I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years to be brave enough to make my art. And in the somewhere, you know, right after college, instead of saying, I want to be creative, I want to make art, I ended up working at a talent agency. Right, <laughs> right. It was like, if I can't make art and I can't, you know, art, uh, creatively express myself, I'm going to work on the business side of helping other people do that. But it, it didn't even occur to me that I was just creatively blocked and I wasn't allowing myself. Right, to exactly. Do that. Exactly. It's really interesting. So you moved into so how did so you, you went from this point where you were working a lot, you were you know really tired and it, it had kind of you know cumul- accumulated, and then you got to this point where you're like, okay, I have to do something. And did you already have the yoga practice at that point? I did, but that was when it really deepened. That's okay. when the connection happened. You know, okay, that as was a, the aha. Exactly. As I often say to students in my class, you know, we've all heard yoga will change your life. And it sounds pretty dramatic. It might even sound a little bit over the top until you start to feel it. And I remember when I had this meltdown, I saw several doctors in Jakarta and no one could figure out what was wrong with me. And I went to one doctor, an Australian doctor, and he said to me, I want you to go to Bali. I want you to take three weeks off and do absolutely nothing and then come back and see me. I managed two weeks, but during that time, I reconnected with a teacher here who I'd met before, Mm. and I did nothing but pranayama and tears, Mm. pranayama and tears. I mean, I went through some asana, but it was really seeing the impact of breath work, and that was when I said, wow, this is huge. And so yoga became like my refuge, Mm. you know. Um, Anyone that knew me, my yoga practice was like unapologetic and still is. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you listening, Pranayama is a practice of breathing. So it's it's intentional conscious breathing in yoga. So yoga has a bunch of limbs. Most people think it's, you know, downward dog and all the po- postures, which are called asana. And then there's also pranayama, which is breathing techniques. And it's interesting because with breath, I think a lot of the stress cycles in the body can complete themselves. I just I just did a workshop and that was that came up as well. Well, I mean, if we come back to it, and again, <laughs> this is the beauty of yoga. It doesn't matter where in the world you come from. When you get upset, everyone says to you in whatever language, Nora Jean, Norma Jean, calm down and take a deep breath. Relax, breathe. Yeah. There's a reason why we say that. Because when you're breathing properly, you're feeding your cells properly, your whole response to things, you're calming down your adrenals. Mm. Yeah, so to me, breath is perhaps the most important part of the practice. And sadly, in our westernized type yoga, we tend to underestimate that. A lot of impact or emphasis goes on to the physical. And I mean, anyone that knows me, I teach a strong practice. I teach vinyasa flow. I teach yoga with weights. I teach dance hall yoga. All of those are very grounding, yang energy type practices. Mm. But you got to balance it with the breath. Yeah. Yang means more intense practices, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So there's yin and there's yang. Yin is more soft yoga where you're really getting into the connective tissue I think we talked about it in a previous episode and yang is really more where you're getting into that muscle and you're pushing it's you know it's more fitness based definitely you're like you're working it (laughs) exactly exactly however when you add the dimension of the breath you're working it with awareness Mm. you know I often say to people that come to my yoga with weights class and they themselves say it if you're someone that has a gym practice, once you add yoga to the mix, you approach your gym practice with a different level of awareness, mm. you know, because you're more engaged, you're using your abdominal muscles, you're aware of how you're holding weights, you're aware of your breath. So you're, you're optimizing both practices. Oh, cool. So it's more like you're consciously, you know, going through your workout. Precisely. Right. Because I think for, for me and for a lot of people, yoga... Well, for me especially, I'm not like a fitness yogi. You know, I do some yoga, but it's more about getting into the into the space in my body and getting into the awareness. I think you're right. Yeah. And 
I had a teacher a few years ago who was great and told me, you know, once you lose your breath, you're, you're lost. You're lost. You're lost, you know. The whole point of yoga is to connect <coughs> your body with your breath, right? So once you, if, you know, if you ever get to the point where you're in a yoga class and they're doing a sequence and you're like, <gasps> like another vinyasa. <laughs> vinyasa is where you, you go down into like a push-up and then you push through and up and then back to downward dog. So you do, you know, it can get a little bit physically intense. And so, you know, a lot of people try to keep up and there's that pressure. Right. Yeah. Right. And as a vinyasa teacher, I say the same thing. Bring yourself to the floor. Take a relaxing or a restorative asana coming into child's pose. Yeah. Mm, fantastic. So you teach yoga with weights. You teach vinyasa, which is a really flow, active practice. And then you also teach reggae Dance hall yoga. Dance hall yoga. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Jamaican by birth, universal in outlook, universal empress. That's mm. a brand name, as you know. And I love reggae music. You can see my Jolive on the wall there. And uh, yeah, Nadine has a beautiful mural on her wall in her, in her home in Bali. We have these open homes sometimes and and there's these beautiful spaces where we can really be creative. Be creative. You know, if we look at, let, let's back up from the dance hall yoga. How do we even arrive at dance hall? We look at Bob Marley, the music that has had so much influence across the world mm-hmm. in any sort of rising consciousness for humanity. Mm-hmm. And reggae music and Bob Marley have also had a huge impact in yoga as we know it today. So dance hall yoga, dance hall is... I suppose the Jamaican equivalent to African-American hip-hop. Okay. One might argue which one came first, but really it is social commentary mm-hmm. of what is happening in urban communities. Okay. And so dancehall yoga is a combination of dancehall reggae music with yoga-inspired asanas that merge with dance hall moves. So the practice in and of itself is very grounding. It's mainly a standing series. It revolves a lot around our root chakra, our core, our grounding issues around the pelvic area, the okay, sexual so like organs. Getting into the hips, getting into that. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Cool. And so one of the, th- one of the intentions behind that Because as much as I love asana and have immense respect for the practice, we can get very linear. Warrior one, warrior two, downward facing. It all gets very linear. Once you bring the flow into it, bring the hips into it, loosening up the stories in the root, the practice becomes more fun. And you also find more space in your body. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so yoga is not just about getting into the posture and being in that stationary space, but about really that connective journey. Beautifully said. And one of the things I often say in classes and I see, and you know, again, we're products of our environment. So a lot of it comes from how we've been conditioned. We tend to overemphasize arriving into the posture Mm -hmm. and forgetting the journey to the posture. And Mm -hmm. for me, the journey happens as I extend my arms from the chest, reaching through the middle fingers, letting the shoulder blades melt down the back, wrapping the rib cage in all of that is the yoga once mm-hmm. I've landed in whatever it is I'm coming to mm, you know absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah so it's not just about the posture but the getting into totally. it and the connecting totally the okay, totally fantastic. that's the yoga you know even in versions a lot of us this thing of trying to turn ourselves upside down yeah it's beautiful and one of the greatest gifts we get from an inversion practice is to look at life from a different perspective Mm. as a yoga teacher i am very very what is the word i'm looking for my mission in the practice is to get people to integrate take that practice off the mat into your heart and out into your life Mm, let it affect your life Precisely. You know, see the connectedness in the practice. So if I'm coming into an inversion, how can I look at life from a different standpoint? Absolutely. You know, and so many of us and the reason that we get afraid or or fear arises when you're trying to bring yourself upside down is because you're not in control. When we're on the floor, we're way more grounded than when we're upside down. Mm. However, if we can surrender to that, then it happens with ease and grace. Same thing in life. Step out of the way. Let life happen. 
Oh, you I know? like that. So there's definitely a philosophy behind it. Now, totally. I took one of your classes, I think it must have been a couple of months ago at this point. It was around Bali Spirit Festival. It was around Bali Spirit Festival, which is a big yoga, world music, dance festival here in Bali. It's usually around March every year. And in your class, when we were doing inversions, there's a lot of pressure, you know, like... How do I make myself look like the Instagram yogis? You know, how do I, like, you know, get up into into handstand perfectly? Like, honestly, that's not my practice. But you said something I thought that was really poignant. You know, you talked about even putting your legs up the wall, like, you know, where you're laying on your back and you just scoot all the way up toward the wall and have your legs running against the wall. That's an inversion. So it's really not about challenging yourself. Exactly, exactly. Because what you want to do in an inversion at a physiological level is to reverse your blood flow, which therefore gives your internal organs a bit of a boost. Mm -hmm. So even downward-facing dog, because you're kind of upside down on a level, if you think about downward-facing dog like a backward V. Yeah, downward-facing dog is where you have your hands and your feet on the floor and you're kind of bent in a sideways L shape. Right. That is an inversion. You know, so the thing is, if we can focus on the benefits of what we're trying to do, it doesn't matter. You don't have to come into a handstand in order to gain the inversion. And really, (laughs) the ultimate, to me, some teachers may feel otherwise, the ultimate gift of a handstand lesson is really the surrender to your ego. Because your ego is going to mess with you. If you bring the ego into trying to turn yourself upside down, you're screwed. Mm. You know? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people maybe want things to happen a certain way, but it's really about letting your body dictate that. Precisely. Cool, cool. So talking about the journey of getting into the postures and, and really, you know, about the practice of yoga and connecting everything, how did this connect into your writing? Yeah. (laughs) How did this connect into the writing? Because Nadine, you've been writing for... A while, yeah. Years, Mm. maybe 15 years or so. You have a couple of articles online and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The writing and the yoga kind of came around the same time, you know. Actually, the writing came a little bit before. I remember 1999, when we all thought the world was going to end. Oh, right, Y2K. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, Y2K. And um, I remember I wrote a poem, if I might even be able to find it online. That was called Y2K. Mm. And a publication picked it up and it kind of went viral. And what made me write that poem? Because I had lived in all of these countries, I used to have this project where at the end of the year, I would do all of these Christmas cards with like a year in review letter. Mm. And for 1999, I chose to write this poem. Mm. And so a friend of mine, Suzanne Couch, incredible musician in Jamaica and one of my dearest friends, she said to me, you really need to look at this writing. And so I kind of started to write and, you know, I started off doing journaling. I remember going through a breakup um, in a relationship and journaling helped me a lot through that process. And yeah, I just continued to write. One of my first articles I ever had published by Thompson Gale in an academic journal was about gender and race, Mm. um, which is something I'm very passionate about. Race trumps gender. Didn't mean to use the T word, but anyway, it's there. (laughs) And then I started to write for Elephant Journal, wrote for Elephant for a couple of years. I've had stuff published in Mantra Magazine. I recently had an article in Essence Magazine. Mm. And so the book, Empress Journals, From Exodus to Transformation, is really the journey of leaving Jamaica to where I find myself now in Bali and the lessons I've learned along the way and really infused with a huge dose of yogic principles. Mm. Yeah. So it's about your journey and, and how you've integrated a lot of the principles from yoga into your life. Totally. Cool. Yeah. So that was really interesting what you said about race trumping gender. How does that, because I feel like yoga is at the intersection of a lot of things. So how is yoga at the intersection of race and gender and how does that play into it a bit? Wow, I just got really excited. So there's a new word, which I'm sure as a writer yourself, you've heard buzzing around intersectionality. It's a new buzzword. I had to actually look it up because I wanted to be clear. And what it really talks about is when we have a cross section of delicate issues and how that intersection 
shifts the dynamic of the conversation completely. Mm -hmm. And one of them is around race and gender. You know, if nothing else, you know, we saw at the start of this year were due to shifts in the United States politically, Mm -hmm. that global feminine ascension collective of nearly three women, three million women across the planet gathering in their various cities Mm -hmm. to stand up for what it means to be feminine was absolutely Mm -hmm. mind-blowing. You're talking about the Women's March. I'm talking about the Women's March. And that in and of itself was, was tremendous. But what was even more tremendous about that march is the return to the sacred feminine self. And I'm not talking about the goddess movement here because I think there can be some misunderstanding around the goddess movement. What is the goddess movement? Well, it means different things to different people, but it is really the the celebration of the female God being. Oh, right. The, so embracing our inner feminine goddess. Kind of thing. Precisely. Like a long flowing thing. Well, you see, and, I don't think right. that's about that. And I think it gets oversimplified where we think because we have feathers in our hair like I do. <laughs> and we're running around saying, well, I'm the goddess and I'm supposed to be worshipped. No, no, no. There's a goddess in all of us as there is a God in all of us. Mm. It's, it's the ascended masculine and the ascended feminine that lives within us that gives rise to or beingness right the is duality what, in everyone the, precisely but it's not so much about the duality it's about the integration of those beings because mm. it's not one or the other and i think this is where the discussion around masculine and feminine has re that's where we have the misunderstanding because it's not a diversion it's a helix it's how we integrate both of them That's my feeling. Anyway, getting back to this intersectionality, when I wrote that article, I was working in the Netherlands for the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, working on chemical disarmament in a predominantly white male environment. Okay, and and you're not white or male. (laughs) Precisely, precisely. And... You know, I would arrive at meetings with my white male assistant and people would say to him, where is Ms. McNeil? Because then I also had a last name like Ms. McNeil. So my demographic didn't look like Ms. McNeil. Mm. And we'd have a joke about it and he'd go, he was, you know, big Dutch guy, six foot three. He'd go, she's my boss, five foot nothing. And then I would go into meetings um, where there'd be other women and people would go, oh, are you Miss Norma Jean's secretary? Somehow, the fact it couldn't occur to anyone that you could actually be my assistant. And so when I say race trumps gender, and this is very controversial, when I enter, if you and I enter a room together, people don't see two women. They see a black woman and Norma Jean. And that's a hard, you kind of have to stop and sit and go, oh shit, you don't see two women. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I mean, I feel that as a woman, sometimes I feel like if I'm in a room full of men, like I've been at jobs in the past where, you know, I'll be asked to get coffee and that's not my job. Precisely. I'll be asked because I'm a woman. But I think to add race onto that, it it sounds... I mean, once or twice, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, okay. But after a while, you're like, come on, people. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, I'm wearing a skirt, but I'm not going to get you coffee. So I think... What you're talking about is even next level. It's the next level. Mm. And so one of the things, as as the world knows, I mean, we look at what's happening with, you know, all of these suicide bombs and this intolerance of differences. And one of my mantras and a legacy I would like to leave behind is a shift in how we look at these things. We are not all the same. We are different and we are one. But we cannot get to oneness unless we embrace the fact that we're different. Yeah. Right. So stop putting me in the white male box. Precisely. Like, let's celebrate who I am and acknowledge that person on an equal level. Precisely. Okay. And in that celebration, then we can move to oneness. And the only way to do that is that there are some uncomfortable conversations that we have to have. Yeah, absolutely. And so we live in a world where no one wants to have those uncomfortable conversations because you kind of have to look at yourself first. Mm. Well, I do. That's why we have this podcast. Exactly, which is wonderful. (laughs) And, you know, I really look forward to seeing more of these discussions because it is through these discussions 
discussions that we start to create that ripple effect, you mm-hmm. know. I remember years ago living in Jakarta and... Um, Jakarta is the capital of Indonesia, by the way, for those of you in other countries. It's pretty much like the New York of Indonesia. Precisely. So it's a lot of big commerce, a lot of entertainment. It's a big hub here in Indonesia. In any event, I remember I was in a bookstore and I was on my cell phone. In fact, I told this story the other night and I was leaving the bookstore. I was on my cell phone talking to a friend and the alarm went off and I I very matter-of-factly said to her, oh shit, I hope they don't call the police because I'm on my way to a meeting and I don't have time for this. And about three weeks later, this friend of mine I was talking to is a Scottish woman. We've known each other for years. Mm. About three weeks later, she came back to me and she said, Nadine, that comment bothered me for weeks because what was fascinating to me was that it was your default response. She said that would never have been her response. Her response would have been, what the hell has happened to the alarm system? Why is it going off? Right. And that in and of itself gives you where we are on race. Because I guarantee you, if you tell 10 black people what my experience, we'd all have that reaction. Yeah, it's a common experience. It's a common experience. Absolutely. So in acknowledging that, whoa, this is what's really happening, mm-hmm. then we can start to say, well, how do we unpack this? How do we defy these stereotypes? Yeah. You know, so it's, um, it's big work. It's big, big work. The good news is that I think the world is actually ready for it because we're seeing that all of the other systems that we've tried to work with aren't working, which is what's giving rise to the whole esoteric yoga, spirituality. You know, we happen to live in Ubud, Bali, which is sort of the spiritual mecca of the world, as it were. And you see people from all over the planet coming through here. Mm -hmm. You see women in hijab. You see blonde-haired, blue-eyed people from Scandinavia. You see black Africans, you see Chinese, you said we're all coming through here in search of meaning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. So what are some things that people, I guess, of all races and all genders can do to help equal the playing field? (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough one, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, you know, in terms of in terms of, you know, what can people do to counter their own? bias that they've been, you know, socially ingrained with? Well, I think one of the things, it might sound very blasé, but seek to understand rather than to be understood. I had a workshop recently here, Scripting Your Joy. I combine yoga and writing. Mm. Um, And I'll come back to that, but let me answer your question first. And there was a woman there who, she was from Slovakia, She was on a Southeast Asia tour and she was talking about the poverty she had encountered in Thailand and Cambodia and Indonesia and all of these people begging her and she was sick and tired of this begging and they should go and get work because she has worked really hard to buy her ticket to be here in Asia. Mm. And I just sat down and bore witness. And throughout the day, as we started to unpack the workshop, because a lot of that workshop is looking at who am I? What story am I telling myself that I believe to be true? Ooh, How, I like that. Yeah. And she started to see that there was a lot of judgment in her story mm-hmm. based on her reality of Slovakia. Because, you know, as I said earlier, we are products of our environments. And we oftentimes don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. I say that a lot as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I really think that, you know, anybody that's on a path like this is doing some degree of questioning. Mm. You know, I've been on the path for, what, over 15 years, and even times I'm still bumping up against myself. Mm. And one of the things I often say is that the more I know is the less I know. And the more questions I ask are the more questions that arise. Mm. You know, you're constantly peeling away layers. You know, I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years around family issues, lots of judgment about the way things should be in the family and why my parents didn't do this and that, that, that. They did the best they could based on what they knew at that point in time. Mm. You know, I've been incarnated into this lifetime with whatever my dharma, whatever karma is. Yeah, so it's having compassion. Precisely. For not just yourself. I mean, I think having compassion for yourself is really vital 
but also compassion for how things happened. And you can always change the narrative. Totally. And also, what's more, Norma Jean, is that if you don't have compassion for yourself, you can't create the space to look at the narrative differently. You know, it's like I met a friend recently and we were talking about he grew up in a very Protestant upbringing. He is German. He has come out of World War II lineage. And so... Oh, that's a lot of... There's a big probably guilt or shame body exactly, around that. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, and, you know, his quest is to break out of that so that he can reconnect to himself. Society and his family deem that he had to have a proper job and he had to be educated. So, yes, he has done the PhD and all of that. But really what he wants to do is be creative and do improv. So now he's at this point in his life where he's able to integrate that aspect, mm. you know. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to hear some tips and tricks from Nadine and all about this writing yoga intersectional workshop. We'll get back to the show in a minute. Today's show is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer, songwriter, and I have an original cartoon that I post every day that I draw on my Instagram at Norma Jean Loves Doodles. You can find shirts of my cartoons, all of the links to my music at njloves.com. We are actually looking for sponsorship for Stay Wild. So if you're interested or you know anyone, please send them to staywildpodcast.com. Thanks and back to the show. All right, we're back with Nadine McNeil, and this is Stay Wild. And so, Nadine, you have been talking about intersectionality and and bringing a lot of things together. And recently, for you, you've been teaching some workshops, is that right? Yes, I teach quite a few workshops, and one of my specialty with the yoga, and it's one of the things that people here love in Bali, is how I integrate yoga with other modalities. Mm. So, for example, Scripting Your Joy is an integrated yoga and writing workshop. And essentially, uh, while we're practicing yoga, we're also journaling at the same time. Because as we know, it's what I call yoga ethnochoreology. Our stories are encrypted in our DNA. So as you begin to practice yoga and as you begin to shift certain things physically through the pen, and I'm adamant about writing with the pen because the pen becomes an extension of the index finger Mm -hmm. of the hand, you are able to place your stories somewhere. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you choose to share those stories, that becomes another matter but essentially scripting your joy is basically the body is art in motion through the asana and you integrate the writing as a place where you can hold a mirror and see what am I practicing and what is coming up that story depending on who shows up for that workshop I do offer some writing tips if people want to write articles if people are writing memoirs if people are writing prose and also just you know every one of us have a story mm-hmm. when people go I have nothing to say we all have something to I say I believe that as well everyone has the story of their life totally yeah and you would be amazed that when people drop in and this is why I so love yoga mm-hmm. it's one of those moments that we really give ourselves time and space to be when people drop into themselves you would be blown away by some of the stuff they land you and i've done writing workshops together Mm, we have (laughs) you know where we have seven minutes and you'd be like shit i have just unraveled 200 years of intergenerational trauma in seven minutes you're like look what came out (laughs) exactly because it's the thing is (laughs) we've taken the ego out of the way We've gone into our intuitive, creative juju, as it were, and we've just let the medicine come forth, yeah. you know? Yeah, you said journaling, and I feel like in a lot of spiritual practices or, you know, with a lot of creative practices, like in the artist way, journaling is a bit of a buzzword. Yes. So what do you mean by journaling? <laughs> For me, journaling 
it's at a physical level, it's keeping a record or a book or a diary. I remember as a child, it was called a diary. Mm. It wasn't called a journal. Oh, right. Dear diary. Dear diary. <laughs> and, you know, you'd write up whatever it is you wanted to write about mm. whatever happened. It's like, it's like yourself having a conversation with yourself. Mm. Now, within the realm of yoga, it could be your higher self having a conversation with your mortal self, mm. as it were. But for me, journaling is just that place where I get to sit down and reflect on whatever is happening in my life. Mm. And is that a daily practice for you? Not so much anymore, but in periods of my life, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, there have been periods, and it's funny. (laughs) Both my yoga and my journaling seem to, well, as I said, they kind of become my refuge and my strength and my solace in hardship postings. I think the places where I really deepen both of those practices Haiti shortly after the earthquake Did in you go tw- to Haiti? yes I was in Haiti for oh, 9 right. months you and Sean Penn <laughs> right yeah. right and a whole bunch of other people yeah, i absolutely. um yeah i arrived in oh, Haiti Sean and all that yeah yeah 10 days after the earthquake wow okay the central african republic fourth poorest country in the world and indonesia when i was it wasn't so much that i was in hardship but I was going through my spiritual awakening. Hmm. It's funny. Sometimes it's not where we are physically, but where we are in our lives and our journeys in our lives, physically, emotionally. You know, sometimes it's it. You, you could be at Disneyland, and if your boat's rocked, the Matterhorn's no fun. Like, Word. <laughs> you know? That's a beautiful analogy. That's yeah. a beautiful analogy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the whole process of journaling, really very important. Mm. And you learn, in fact, <laughs> I'll tell you a beautiful story on this whole journey of self-reflection. I remember while living in Jakarta, one day I was cleaning out a cupboard and I came across a journal that I had from 2003. Mm. And when I opened up the journal, I was writing virtually the same thing in 2007. And that was when I realized I needed help. And so then I went and found a therapist. Mm. You yeah, know? you're dealing with the same issues over and over, over again. Over and it's over like, again. Okay, Groundhog Day. Exactly. And <laughs> How do I break this cycle? And another thing, it's really important to write in a journal, but you mm. need to revisit it from time to time. Yeah, I think reading your work is probably really important because otherwise you don't get that perspective exactly exactly absolutely yeah i've had therapists in my life from time to time i always think it's nice to have an uninvolved outside human being give like a sanity perspective right like how'd that work out you know yes yes and also someone that you can talk to where you don't feel you're going to be judged so you you know you can be as open to yourself that Mm. person is basically being the mirror and the muse you know Mm. so that's one workshop and any workshop that I co-lead or lead has some degree of writing involved in the process absolutely Uh, one of my other signature workshops is called Groundation Celebration and I co-teach that with a dear friend of mine Sienna Creasy Sienna lives in Jamaica we met uh, when she was in Jamaica she was a Peace Corps worker so Mm. she has that background you guys have very similar journeys we have very similar journeys I forget you know Sienna because she was here for Bali Spirit. Sienna was here for Bali And did she teach a class at Bali Spirit Festival? She taught Regulatis. She taught a couple of classes. Regulatis was the jam at yeah. Bali Spirit yeah. Festival. It, I think it was like Reggae Pilates. I mean, I... I didn't actually make it to that class, but everyone I know did the same hip gyration explaining it to me. I know, right? <laughs> they were like reggae lotties as they're like moving their hips in this in this really fun way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she's great. She's a lovely person. Yeah, yeah. She's mainly prana flow, Shiva Ray trained. So we've done a lot of work together. And oh, such a beautiful question on, on this podcast because groundation celebration brings together yoga, writing, ritual, and movement. Mm-hmm. We've run it four years running at Kripalu in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Okay, so you run this workshop in the U.S.? Right, mainly in the U.S. Okay. Um, we will be going to Esalen with it this year, 15 to 20 October. Fantastic. Wow. Okay, so Esalen, for, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's an institute. It's an amazing space in Big Sur. Is it in Big Sur? It is in Big Sur. It's in Big Sur, which is on the coast of California on Highway 1. One, which is this beautiful road, I think, that runs all the way up 
It's literally where the redwood forest meets the ocean. It's a magical place. There's hot springs at Esalen, and they do a lot of workshops and, and healing work, massage courses year-round, right? Correct. They have recently, Mother Nature has not been so kind to the area, but they mm. are opening again by the end of June, I believe. Was there, was there an oil spill there? No, massive landslide, massive okay. landslide. Mm. But also, I mean, it's a real privilege and honor for me to be, you know, oh my God, to think I can even teach at Esalen when mm. you think Just of the... going there is such a highlight and generally you can't visit unless you're doing a workshop. I think they open the hot springs from like one to three in the morning if you're just driving through and you're like, when am I going to go to the hot springs and one in the morning? But it's, it's a, I've heard amazing things. Yeah, but you know, you've had the likes of like Joseph Campbell come through Esalen. So mm. to be able to show up in that space mm. as a teacher for me is a tremendous privilege. And Sienna with her Native American Indian background, me with my Jamaican slash Rastafari upbringing ideology, Groundation Celebration is really about moving through the elements. So we do a lot each day. The, the classes or the, the workshop is themed around the elements, fire, earth, air, ether. And we do movements through the body that address each area in the body. Cool. We, we also do some writing in the process. We do some healing work with water, going to the waters, going to the lakes. We do some fireworks. We have drum circles. But one of the things that's really important about this work, coming back to the issue of gender and race, mm. particularly in America, is that you look at Sienna and I, so different yet so similar, and we bring the oneness vibration. Mm. So that's a huge part of the workshop, so I'm really excited about that. And then something I'm presently working on, which I hope to launch later on this year or early next year in Bali is what I call In Search of Meaning. Mm. And that workshop is basically my life story. My aim for it is people in the humanitarian world, aid workers, you know, we're out there saving the world, doing all of this do good work, but how are we taking care of ourselves? Yeah. Why are we doing this work? Because super, super important as an aid worker, and not just aid worker, anyone in the business of service, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, that's when you're going to run into burnout, and that's when you're going to trigger, re-trigger your own trauma. Mm. So that workshop, it's a week long in search of meaning. There's yoga, there's meditation, there's breath work, there's writing, there's ritual. Yeah. Uh, I do one-on-one -on -one sessions as a part of that because I'm also a transformation coach. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, I wish I knew we could have unpacked that a bit. Um, so, Nadine, really quickly, what are some tips you have for people in their daily lives not to avoid burnout? You know, small things that people can do on a regular basis, whether it's taking deep breaths or checking in with themselves. What would you recommend? Well, a recipe for daily life that we can all do. Before you even step out of bed in the morning, take three minutes. Sitting up in your bed, allow the eyes to softly close, placing the hands on the legs, and just taking three minutes to breathe. I have a wonderful, simple breath exercise that I offer as a gift. You inhale for a count of seven. You hold the breath for a count of seven. You exhale the breath for a count of seven. Three minutes. Start your morning off with some lemon water, alkaline the body, you know? Oh, I do that as well, actually. Simple, yeah. Yeah. First thing in the morning, some lemon water. If you must have coffee, I love coffee. I have that first cup of coffee in the day. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and do that. From time to time, give your body a break. Have a juice day. Have a day if you're a meat eater. Have a day where you're not having any meat to eat. Exercise, huge part of the process, especially for, you know, these lives that we live that are filled with so much stress, mm. you know. Take a walk, connect with nature, put your feet on the grass from time to time. Silence, moments of silence, so mm -hmm. important. And that can, can be integrated in your three minutes. Have that glass of wine. Also be human with yourself. Yeah, give you know? yourself permission to be human. I give think. yourself permission to be mm -hmm. human. I think it's, for a lot of people, it's, it's allowing yourself to have that time, to have that practice, to have that moment where you're like, oh. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, do something fun. At least once a year, try to do something that you've never done before. Mm -hmm. One of the things I would really invite people to get clear about is know who is in your inner circle. Mm -hmm. 
Make sure that the people that surround you, that you have shared values and principles and that they're in alignment. Especially for those of us listening who are space holders. When you're giving out so much energy, you got to be really mindful of your toxic vampires. Yeah. Yeah, that is something I would say to everyone. Just be really clear about who surrounds you and work Mm. from the premise that less is more. You know, we don't need all of these things that we have around us. Are these things really bringing you joy? What lights you up? Get very clear about what takes you out of bed in the morning. Mm. You know, live a life of intention. Live from a place of consciousness. And above all else, infuse everything you do with a huge dose of love. Love is all there is. Oh, I love that. Love is the thing. Word. Love is the thing. And I was just, um, I just was watching a clip online of Oprah being like, not only are, resp- are you responsible for the energy that you bring, but you're responsible for the people you let into that inner circle and the energy they bring. Right. And if their energy isn't in alignment with your energy... Yeah. You know, yeah. you're responsible for that. Totally, totally. You're responsible for, I mean, you know, you are what you eat, but you also are your friends. Word. And you know, not only are you what you eat at a physical level, thought is also food. So Ooh. be mindful of your thoughts, you know. And just one thing I'd like to say, because, you know, I've lived in something like 14 countries in my lifetime. I've been very close to people at one stage of my life, and I'm not so close to them anymore. Not because we've had a falling out. My reality is that I've lived all over these places, and we can only travel with so much. Mm. It doesn't mean that because you and I aren't in touch today that I love you any less. I just love you from a different place. Absolutely. And I've had friends and relationships where that's been really difficult to come to terms with Mm -hmm. but you know it is what it is absolutely absolutely well Nadine thank you so much we're so happy to have you on Stay Wild and how can people find you find out about your workshops your classes here in Bali in the States in Jamaica wow Uh, log on to my website universalempress.com www.universalempress.com on Instagram it is universalempress on Facebook it is universalempress come to Bali I'm at theyogabarn.com and yeah there I am amazing Universal Empress Nadine McNeil thanks again Thank you. All right, little humans. Today's toast poem is about when you love someone, um, but they aren't in your lives anymore, and you remember how good it could have been, I guess. (laughs) Here we go. I dreamt of you last night. You held my hand, fingers entwined, tethering you to me. You came to my house. Loved me more than you ever did. Skinny legs, soft heart, cutting wit, but kinder, open, available. You circled as the same, but not. Weathered by life, loneliness, you had let go of fear, just as I had let go of attachment. Thanks again for listening today, little humans. I hope you enjoyed Nadine's perspective and interview and the conversation we had that happened around it and the toast poem that followed after. I write those little poems and it's really nice to share them with you all. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from and write us a review if you can. Until next time, little humans, stay wild. So we keep on keeping on.